Welcome to Season 2, Episode 13 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Adam Alston. Adam is the author of Waypoints, out through Splice in March. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hi. Thanks for having me. You grew up in Brisbane. Now you live in Hobart. How did you end up in Tasmania? Um, so my parents had been coming down for holidays for like 20 years. And, uh, and one at the end of one of those holidays, they came back and announced that they'd bought a place down here and they were moving down and... Pretty soon after, I um, I came down to visit for a uh, for a, a, a Christmas New Year period, and really liked it. And uh, they were living in a really beautiful spot um, outside of Hobart on the beach, and um, yeah, it was just so atmospheric and lovely. And um, I don't know. I just clicked with the place straight away and decided six months later to move down. And I've been here ever since. And they've all since moved back. <laughs> so, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm the last man standing in a way. It's funny because Tasmania and Brisbane, I don't think there's too many more opposite cities in a lot of ways. But <laughs> what are some of the best reasons to live or visit Tasmania? Uh, well, it just—it's just quieter. There's just—it's just for starters, just sheer volume of people or lack thereof. It's just—it's slower. It's quieter. It's well, it used to be cheaper, but now I'm not so sure about that. Um, but you know, it's just there's not the hustle of the bigger cities, um, and. And that kind of manifests in all sorts of things, like you know the the psyche of the people, um, the way uh, the way uh, they accept things, um, the way that you can just do your own thing and pretty much not feel too much pressure to compete or live up to anything, um, but also on a on another level, I don't know, there's just an atmosphere about the place. It's very atmospheric, um, whether that has to do with the undulations and the mountain, the particular climate. Um, I guess it's a combination of all of those things and you've got the river and the mountain and Storm Bay and it can be quite tempestuous, but it can also be just stunningly beautiful. Um, so. And it's just a completely different place, winter to summer as well. Um, and it's almost hard to imagine the place in summer as we're in now and we're having 25 to 30 degree days. It's almost impossible to imagine it in wintertime when, when it can be quite bleak. Um, and yet it's beautiful at both times. So... Um, I don't know. I like I like surrounding myself with beautiful things, and I think I just found this beautiful place, and it's stuck. Every time I visit Tasmania, I am just so inspired to go and live there because you're right. You do have this beautiful mountain there, which gets snow on top of it any time of year, really. Like in the <laughs> middle of summer, it can get snow. It's true. Yeah. And you look out on this beautiful harbour. Um, you look across to these islands and it is something that is just magical. It's such a beautiful place. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's very particular, uh, a very particular place in Australia. There's, there's, there's not really anywhere else like it. And I find now when I go to um, any of the other capital cities, just the, the flatness and the sprawl kind of freaks me out now and I feel quite unnerved. I think I've, I've grown used to having that, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the little hug that the, the mountain and the surrounding ranges uh, provides. You know, it, it, it's like this little blanket 
it's kind of puffed up around the city and it's 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 quite comforting in a way it's also one of the few cities in the country that actually get four seasons in you know sydney or melbourne or really Mm -hmm. anywhere else in the country we seem to have maybe two seasons if you're lucky but tasmania really does get that four seasons you can look at the southern lights you know on a lucky day down there And, um, yeah, it's completely different to anywhere in the country. Yeah, it really is. And um, I don't know, people people say it reminds them of England and Scotland and, you know, those kinds of places. And, and I can see what they mean. I mean, it's vastly different, obviously. But um, there are, yeah, I mean, in terms of, yeah, in terms of... Uh, greater Australia it's it's closer I guess to a European climate than anything else yeah um all right let's move on to writing you wrote your PhD on Robert Dassault another Hobart local could you tell us a bit more about the lit scene that is growing hugely in in Tasmania uh yeah yeah uh it's um it's a really good really good community um I mean I say I say community, but I mean we're all off doing our own things, and we're quite supportive of each other. But we don't kind of get together every week, and and or I don't. Anyway, maybe they they all are, and I don't get the invite. But um, they it just seems that um, yeah, lots of there's lots of people publishing books this year and um yeah it's quite phenomenal uh, i think um of of people i know in fact people i used to work with at the bookshop there's four of us that have books coming out this year so it's um it, yeah it's quite something and it's attracting other writers from around the country as well and and folks interested in in books and and, and reading and writing um, and yeah there's just i mean in terms of my immediate circle uh, i worked for a long time with with ben walter and um and robbie arnett and so we've been friends for for a long time um and we've you know often met we used to meet once a week and share writing or just talk about books and writing and that kind of thing and um we stopped doing that a couple of years ago as our lives started to go in different directions. But but we did that for, for many years. Um, and that was our little click and we kind of try and get together every now and then um, these days. Um, but increasingly, yeah, it's it's been other other people that we kind of know about and all of a sudden they've got a book coming out. It's like, wow, it's, uh, yeah. I don't know. There's something in the water down here that uh, that's inspiring good good writing. I don't know what it is. One of the things that I think is really interesting about Tasmania and Hobart, especially, is the rise of of Mona. I think that really changed the scene in Tasmania quite a lot. Um, and I know you've got involvement in Dark Mofo and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a bit more about that art scene? Yeah, well, again, I'm on the peripheries of it. I just kind of, um, I was involved in Dark Mofo in 2019 with an act that I put together called Costume. Um, it was a musical act and I recorded an album and did the debut at the, uh, at the 2019 Dark Mofo. Um, they, and they were really supportive and kind of, Actually, it all came about because I ran into the creative director Lee Carmichael in the in the bookshop where I was working, and I just started talking to him about books. And then we, I said I had this idea for a for an act that I wanted to do. I was in a band for a long time before that, but I wanted to do something new. Um, and he was really supportive of it. And I think um, I think their hearts. In the right place, um, they uh, they've they've really created something down here um, that's quite special and and unique. Um, and yeah, uh, they've. Uh, I mean, 
like like them or or hate them, but you can't deny the the good that they've done for the place in terms of putting it on the map culturally. I think they're you know they're, they're becoming aware of some of their not shortcomings, but things that they've perhaps overlooked uh, or. You know, there was that whole kerfuffle um, for around was it last year's? I think it was last year's uh, uh, festival. Um, so they're kind of still finding their way, which is which is good. I mean, you know, they'll make mistakes, and and that's part of finding your way. So. Um, and they've got enough behind them that they can make mistakes and come back. It's not going to be the end of the world. Um, but, uh, yeah, they've been very supportive over, over the years of both. Well, I think the local um, local artists and and doing things for the place more generally in terms of getting getting bigger acts in and, and, and making a spectacle of the place. Yeah. No, I think it's bringing a lot of people down to Tasmania as well. Yeah. I think it's really a kind of focal point for the art scene, which is really good. Yeah, I want to ask you a tiny bit more about costume. Could you tell us a bit more about uh, this? Is it an alter ego, I suppose? <laughs> yeah. Um, it. I don't know where it came from, to be honest. I think it had been just sitting in the back of my mind for a long, long time. And I've always been interested in in fashion and theatre and um, and music, and I wanted to kind of put all that together. Um, and I had a very particular sound in mind, and I had even the recording studio that I wanted to go to to record the album. Um, and so, I think I um, I had a very clear idea, and I wanted it to be you know transportive and you know, um, create a different kind of world via music and, and costuming and makeup and um, to so that it had a kind of cinematic effect. You know, you go into the cinema and you kind of leave the real world at the door. Uh, that's kind of the effect that I was going for with, with costume and um, having been in a kind of uh, post-punk band with you know, with three other angry young men, it was nice to um, just kind of branch out and kind of embrace a more kind of new romantic style and express a kind of side of myself that I hadn't been able to before. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and that was, that was costume. And, yeah, worked with costume designers and set designers and just put on the whole shebang um, because I thought, you know, I might not get the opportunity again to do it. So I just kind of threw everything at it. Uh, it was a whole lot of fun. It, it's kind of, I'm sure, but it, it kind of turns out really beautifully because I think you really do pull it off in, in such a great way and it's, it's fun and it's, uh, you know, it's out there and it's just really challenging, but I love it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's good fun. Um, I don't know if I'll do anything more with it. I might. Um, I've got, I've got another album written. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't know. I've just been writing too much to worry about anything else. Mm. I just, you know, so I don't know. I found, I found throughout, you know, my adult life, it's either been, I've either been writing prose or music, and very rarely can I do both at the same time. And I, find, I found, I found like that costume thing took two years out of my writing life. Really, um, actually, Waypoints was the first thing that I wrote after that period. Um, and uh, yeah, and I just didn't write for like two years. I was just busy doing the costume stuff and didn't didn't have it in me to to write anything and I think I think that break was was formative for me as as a writer as well um, it enabled me to I don't know get a break from writing uh, and let some things percolate 
and exercise a few things that needed that I needed to get out of the way via performance or something and then so that I could write the kind of things I needed to write in terms of prose. Well, with that, let's move on to Waypoints. It's a fantastic novel. It's loosely based around one man's attempt to recreate a flight Harry Houdini made uh, west of Melbourne in 1910. Could you tell us a bit more about your main character, Bernard Cripp, in this book? Uh, Yeah, so I'd, I'd kind of known about this Houdini flight for a long time and I thought, it had, it had just been in the back of my mind as these things are and, and just uh, I, didn't, I hadn't really been thinking about it. Uh, and then uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to describe, but uh, I just one day had a, had, a, had a feeling and heard this kind of voice and, and that turned out to be this Bernard Cripp character <laughs> who... who um, I don't know, it probably has a lot to do with my interest in performance because in a way he's putting on a performance by recreating this, this flight that, um, that Houdini made. Uh, so on one hand it's a bit of an absurd undertaking but then as you kind of read on and, and, and find out what's behind it, I guess it's, it's not so absurd. Um, I mean, it still is absurd, but there's at least you can make the connections there as, as to why he, he might be doing what he's doing. Um, and really, he first emerged as as a voice, as a uh, I've, I've often, again again my kind of interest in performance. I kind of see the whole novel as a kind of dramatic monologue, if you like, of, you know, he could almost be just standing there speaking this whole, this whole novel. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a compulsion to, to dramatise uh, not only in terms of what he's actually doing, but but how he's talking as well, um, and it's uh, he's trying to get something out, I think. And as and as you read on, and then he digs deeper into what that is, you kind of start to see what he's actually trying to exercise. It's so well done and as you say like there is that component of being a performer and he's come from this background of circus and Mm. then he goes out and tries to recreate this flight and it's got all of these little complications within it and I think I I can totally see this being like a stage play almost because Mm. like you could see this guy on stage talking about all these things and he kind of diverges along the way And I think that's what makes this novel such a great book because you don't know where it's going and the blurb doesn't really tell you anything about (laughs) the internal story of this guy. Um, And I think that what makes it such an engaging read. Um, MH70, 370, um, that comes up quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Is that a spoiler? Should we not mention that or mention it? No, we can mention it, I think. Yeah, okay. That's fine. Yeah. So obviously MH370 is something that comes up in the book quite a bit. Do you want to talk about Bernard and how that affects him? Yeah, so um so he has uh his his wife and his daughter were on that flight. And uh so this is where his obsession with aviation comes from. Although you could probably argue that he's been obsessed with f- flying before that, given that his wife was also a performer in his family circus and she was a trapeze artist and he has quite particular ideas about flight and about the art of trapeze and this kind of thing. So there was always something about flight there uh, in in his... I guess it's always been a part of his life and his 
um, and his marriage. And so, um, so he becomes obsessed with finding out as much about the disappearance of this flight as he can, uh, which leads him down all sorts of internet rabbit holes. And I wanted the book to, I mean, you hear, like when you, when you hear people talking about writers like particularly um, Siebold, you hear the word encyclopedic come up a lot. And um, I think what I wanted to do here was be more Wikipedic. And because I wanted, I wanted to create the impression of a never-ending feed, like a social media feed or a, or a news feed, so that he was always, from, from wanting to find out one thing, he's just completely bombarded with information. Um, so it's not, so one thing, you know, leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And soon he's, you know, he's, he's talking about, you know, the in, in, incidents of uh, like the, the Pacific trash vortex and, and, and you know, um, these sorts of things rather than about the actual thing that he's there to investigate. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to kind of recreate that kind of maddening effect of a bottomless pit of information that we all have access to um, and how uh, traumatic it, it could be, it, it can be <laughs> when you're actually trying to find something and not just being passively led through one thing after another by whatever algorithm you happen to be. Um, being led by at that time. I think it's really interesting he settles on this kind of Houdini recreation because it's kind of a, it's not really a well-known part of Australian history. Like apparently, you know, like in your book, you talk about it not quite being the first control mm. flight in Australia over a place called Digger's Rest, which is west of Melbourne. But why did you choose that particular event to kind of uh, anchor this novel? Uh, I think because for a few reasons, A, it was ju it's just a bizarre fact in itself that it's, you know, that, that Houdini made the supposedly <laughs> the first flight. I mean, what? You know, <laughs> so just that in itself felt like it had comic appeal. Um, but also that time was a real, you know, it was, it was a modern, the, the dawn of modernism um, taking over from Victorianism, um, the Victor, Victorian culture. Um, and, and Houdini coming to Australia was a real pivotal point uh, in, well, all sorts of things, but um, particularly entertainment. I mean, Vaudeville was dying out and cinema was taking off. And of, of everyone in the world, Houdini was Vaudeville. He was in his mid-30s, he was 36, and he'd put it, been putting his body through hell for 30 years. So he, was, he wasn't in great shape. Uh, his art for people were starting to turn away from his art form, which was partly why he was going up in these aircraft to try and stay relevant and to, you know, uh, give his career a shot in the arm, if you like. Um, so it was uh, the more I investigated the, the, this this idea, the, the, this event of Houdini making these flights in Australia the more I kind of found that it was a really pivotal time in, in a lot of areas. Um, you know, there was, there was talk of, you know, his, his presence here being propaganda for various um, military endeavours as well. So um, 
you know, uh, countries were starting to, to build air forces and, and air corps and, and, and this kind of thing. So um, it was, and it was just before he started to get into heavily into spiritualism and cinema, which kind of was a, was a, was a failed attempt at cinema. It didn't, I mean, he made a few things, but his production company ultimately went bust. And he, he kind of, after, after Australia, he, he performed a bit more, but he kind of just ended up going around debunking false spiritualists for the rest of his life. And he didn't really, I mean, he kept performing, but he wasn't what he once was. And I think Australia was the start of that. Um, and yeah, and, and it, he himself was kind of a, a metaphor, if you like, for the age of vaudeville and um, in the dawn of a new era. And it was like the dawn of flight. And I don't know, vaudeville and flight, uh, these things were wondrous at the time. People would stand around a gog and, and, and watch these feats. And I think as, as flight became more uh, mainstream and common uh, and the advent of cinema, there was a certain, I don't know, it feels like a certain sense of wonder passed along with that. And now flights are very humdrum and, you know, and cinema's lost its magic for, for the most part. Um, but back then it was still, there was still this sense of awe, I think, around things. And, and we may see that as naive uh, and it may seem naive to us now, but I th also think there was, there's something really beautiful that's been lost in that, in that shift um, and that was starting to happen around that time. Such an interesting period. I think as Australians we probably, maybe we have like a perverse fascination with aviation I think in general because we're so far removed from the rest of the world and we've relied on aviation for a very long time. Um, obviously we've got people like Houdini, Amelia Earhart, of course, like, you know, landed here before she went missing. Um, we've had, you know, people like Charles Kingsford Smith. We had Frederick Valentich who went missing over the Bass Strait on the way to you, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like, what sparked your fascination with the idea of journey and aviation? Well, I've always been fascinated just by travel. Um, I think, uh, as we mentioned before, um, you know, I did, I did a PhD in travel writing and uh, travel has always been on my mind. And so for whatever reason, even, even as, uh, as an adolescent, I remember just always dreaming about traveling and usually involving some sort of aircraft. Um, and I don't know, I think, I think too, it, it's got something to do with being Australian. There's an inherent, there's an inherent compulsion to, to move and be mobile as, as an Australian. I think, I think um, whatever civilization has found itself living in Australia, it's always needed to be a mobile civilization. Um, um, just because of the nature of the place and um, the nature of the weather patterns and, um, and just the size of the place as well. So, um, and as we become more of a global community, obviously, yeah, there's the, the, the proverbial tyranny of distance. So um, I think in, in, it, is, it is a particularly... Australian thing to be interested in and kind of fascinated and, and moved by travel. Um, and yeah, that's just, it's always been an interest of mine. And usually anything that I write has something to do with some form of, of travel and transport. Um, yeah. And so I, I didn't have to, I, I didn't, I, I've never had to think about that theme in my work. It just comes out 
magically. With MH370, do you like the idea of just keeping it a mystery or do you have a theory on how that could be solved? Uh, I th- I think they've more or less solved it, but they they can't say definitively what it is, like what what happened. I don't know that the mystery of it. Um, I mean, for for the people that have um, the people that have suffered from it and lost loved ones, I'm sure that you know getting some ultimate closure there would be would be the best case scenario. Um, but the mystery is fascinating and I think that's what has captured the world's imagination, you know, where there's not concrete evidence, whether it's a disappeared airline, disappearance in general. I mean, just the imagination floods in because, you know, um, nature abhors a vacuum, I guess. and and. And there are those gaps in the logic that that are now, enable our imaginations to to have at them, you know. So um, they become quite haunting these disappearances, especially something like that. And I think that's what attracted me to it. There's there's a similar haunting in images of aviation in 1910, I think, and 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 the idea of of these these big um, airliners disappearing there's some this this I don't know it's hard to put into words uh, rather than uh, other than placing them side by side in the same narrative there's there's some echo there that's quite haunting and I think that's what drew me to put them side by side together um, there's some sort of echo of each in the other and um, yeah, I think I don't know. I don't want to. <laughs> I, can't, I can't put a finer point on it than that without without maybe destroying it. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think haunting is is the word though. That's what what drew me to both. I want to talk briefly about Daniel Davis Wood at Splice and uh, Martin Shaw as well because I think that. Uh, they have just been producing some amazing work. They've been representing some, you know, amazing authors at the moment. How's your experience been working with those people? Oh, just, just so great. Like, just lovely people. Um, the editing process with Daniel was just super smooth, and just, yeah, I've, I've had, I've had more painful experiences, you know, editing a. Um, a short story for publication than I than I've had for this whole book. Um, it was just really easy. We we're both on the same page. We both he just understood immediately what I was going for, and I and he communicated that to me really really clearly, and and uh, I, I got where he was coming from as well. So it was just yeah, it was it was seamless, and it's just it's so great that someone like Daniel is working in this space, putting out, you know, mine aside, putting out really interesting things um, and, and taking on things that, that larger publishers are too scared to, to put out, you know. Um, and and I, think, I think there's, there's a real... There's a real space for this kind of work and it's important that this kind of work is out there because there are a lot of people who like this kind of work and um, so it's, uh, it's very clear that Daniel's, you know, smart, enthusiastic and, um, and just, yeah, like a great, great editor and a great author in his own right, obviously, as well. Um, so I think he he straddles both sides of the the, the author editor relationship. So maybe that's what made it such a good experience because he kind of has has been on both sides. So um, 
And Martin, likewise, has just been super easy to deal with. Um, someone, another another writer friend of mine, described him as one of the good guys. So, um, which yeah, yeah, it was uh, lovely to hear. Um, yeah, and he, again, uh, I think he he was the first reader of Waypoints, and, and was just like, "Yep, I know exactly who to send this to," <laughs> you know. And, and he just did his thing, and he knows his stuff, and um, again, really easy, smooth process. Um, and I think between the two of them, they've they've created some. Or a really great community and and and, and a, that's gathering momentum as well, which is uh, is it's really great to see. It's beautiful. I have to say as well, like the the design of your book is just the cover design, the the way it's put together is so good. It's such mm. a lovely product to to pick up, and I really hope to see it everywhere. Um, <laughs> As we go along yeah it's it's just a beautiful book mm, yeah i i agree that was all i don't know who does the designing for daniel but uh yeah yeah again that was also a very smooth process that was maybe three or four exchanges of an email and email exchanges and that was it it was done um you know that that image was the first thing he sent through and i was like Wow, great. Yep, perfect. Are you currently working on anything that you want to talk about? I am. Uh, I've, just about, I've just about finished uh, a, uh, a new novel, um, although it's, uh, it's probably still a bit delicate <laughs> to, to go into too much detail, but it's, uh, it's about gluttony and uh, it's... Um, I've I've had a, a a lot of fun with it, and uh, it's I I guess it's you could say it's in a similar vein to waypoints. Maybe the form is is similar, um, but I'm trying to push that a bit further with this one. So um, yeah, but but I'm just about done. I I think you know another month and it, and it should be done, and then I'll be able to talk about it more. Wow, fantastic. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Thanks. All right, let's talk about your gateway books. What were the books that really uh, opened the door of literature for you? Ah, oh, well, interestingly, I didn't really, I didn't grow up reading books. I, I read here and there, but I wasn't particularly studious. I wasn't particularly interested in reading as, a, as an adolescent. Um, so I think I missed out on a lot of things, actually. Um, and it wasn't until I was reading The Count of Monte Cristo, of all things, and I don't know, something, you know, it was just one of those, something went off in the, inside me. Um, I don't... I, I've, I've thought about this a lot about, about what you know that that moment that, that kind of got me into thinking about writing and and I don't know if there was one particular light bulb moment but I do remember reading the Count of Monte Cristo in my late teens and more than thinking about what was actually happening in the story I was actually thinking about Alexander Dumas sitting there writing it and somehow that was more fascinating even though the story is immensely fascinating the idea of composing it was even more fascinating to me um, so I guess I started and then I started very sheepishly writing my own things and I remember for some reason I still had my grade six poetry exercise book I don't know why I still had it or where I even kept it, but it was still wrapped in this multicolored but primarily iridescent blue contact and had my name and year six written on it. 
and there were a few poems stuck in it. And so I started writing in it and I would hide it under my bed in between my mattress and my bed frame because I didn't want anyone to know that I was writing or that I was even attempting to compose anything. And I, I just slowly filled up that book with not poetry but prose um, and, then, and, and then migrated to the keyboard, I guess, uh, after that. But, um, so the Count of Monte Cristo was, yeah, it, it kind of opened a door and then quite quickly I started reading things like Samuel Beckett and and probably not really understanding at all what I was reading, but I knew that I was reading something that sparked something inside me. So, um, so I read I read Beckett, um, particularly um, Malone Dies, and I have I have really vivid memories of reading Malone Dies, and um, and that's in that you know that same that form, trilogy that that. Yeah, exactly, and that that um, and that one paragraph form, mm. and and this is before I'd even thought about f form or voice or anything like that. It just, I don't know, it just appealed. Just again, struck a chord. Um, it was just so bleak and so dark, but at the same time so funny, and I just was fascinated in how that worked, and you know. I, I guess I'm quite a, you know, I have my own darknesses as well. And, um, but also really appreciate the absurdity of, of really, really dark stuff. And, and I, I, I think the darker the, the story, the funnier it can be, you know, and I just, just kept exploring that kind of stuff. And, you know, um, these European writers just started coming out of the woodwork. Um, you know, then it was Seabold and Bernhard, and um, but also it wasn't just it, it wasn't just that kind of dense, incredibly literary stuff as well. At the same time, I was reading quite, you know, the highly imaginative, the highly imaginative stuff um, from uh, Garcia Marquez and, and and lots of the Latin Americans as well. I mean, that can be quite dense, but. But a lot of the time, like Garcia Marquez, it's, it's you know, it, it, they're dark stories, but they're so multi, um, multi-coloured, if you like. They're so flamboyant that, um, I don't know, that, that the, the darkness gets shuffled into the shadows, if you like. Um, so I was... Uh, I was increasingly attracted to uh, playfulness in prose as well. And obviously the writers like Bernhard and, and, and Beckett and, and Proust as well, um, not only are they great, um, great stylists, but they're also great inventors and they, they're very playful. And I think also the playfulness of the form against the darkness of the story, something that really appealed to me and something that, that I instinctively do each time I write something is um, I try and, yeah, I, I try and strike that balance, I guess, and find that balance the way those writers do and did um, between the form and content. Uh, and and have a have that kind of playfulness, sometimes playfulness of tone, but also playfulness of form, that can itself work to kind of lighten a narrative, without having to rely on, uh, without having to rely on plot, to bring any kind of lightness to what's going on, um, and so. Yeah, I was reading a lot of that. A lot of Jeanette Winterson and, and Angela Carter as well. Um, a lot of kind of those, um, you know, uh, I guess fairy tale, reimagined fairy tales as well. Um, 
and the playfulness inherent in those those books as well, and, and that kind of approach of of of, of taking these um, you know quite patriarchal stories and and you know giving them a feminist bent, uh, I I really enjoyed and got a lot from reading those, particularly Jeanette Winterson's The Passion as well. Uh, that that had a huge effect on me actually, um, and. Uh, yeah, just reading about someone having webbed feet in a seemingly straight narrative. And I was just like, can, can you do that? You know, it was one of those, those, oh, right. That's, you know, so that was like, whoa, okay. That kind of just blew open a door for me. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh it was a slow teasing of this thread that started with Edmund Dantes and kind of culminated in, uh, still culminating, fortunately. <laughs> well, speaking of culminating, um, let's talk about what you're currently reading and what you're looking forward to this year. Uh, okay. Um, well, I'm, I'm, Persevering with Duck's Newburyport. Um, persevering is the wrong word. I'm really enjoying it, but it's so bloody long. So I'm one sentence. Out, one sentence. Just, just magic. I just that's started reading it, and immediately I was like, "This is this is for me. I love this." Um, but I find when I'm writing, and when I'm 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 actually also in the process of preparing for another. I've got an idea for, for my next book after I finish the current one I'm working on. And so I'm researching for that. So I'm reading books about dueling um, and, you know, the art of the duel uh, and, and the protocols around the duel, this sort of thing, and, and about Alexander Pushkin, um, who was killed in the duel. Um, so I'm reading things about uh, biographies and, and lots of non-fiction around this, but also reading Duck's Newburyport um, as a kind of antidote to that and to, I don't know, keep the, the fiction fires burning. Uh, but I also find that when I'm writing, I actually prefer to read non-fiction because I find that voices, you know, if I immerse myself too much in a novel, in reading a novel, uh, I start hearing that voice when I'm sitting down to write and it's quite disruptive. So um, I try, I, I don't even try, I just, just instinctively kind of embrace nonfiction more while I'm, while I'm working on, on something. So, um, yeah, but it's mainly ducks at the moment. Um, what am I looking forward to? I've got, you know, just keep buying books, <laughs> you know, the, the age-old problem. Um, there, there are a few biographies that I'm interested in. Um, the, the most recent um, Fernando Pessoa biography. Sounds so good. Oh, I so haven't good. got my hands on it yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. The new Paul Oster book about Stephen Crane as well sounds really great. And mm. I've, I've got that ready to go. Um, what else am I looking forward to? I haven't read yet read Ben Walters' book, What Fear Was, but I think over the years I've read all the short stories in it, but I am looking forward to, um, to reading it all as a single volume and um, just celebrating his writing because it's, it's bloody wonderful. Um, yeah, I think that's all I've got. I've got lined up at the moment um but there will be intrusions and digressions between all of those no doubt because i'll you know as we do you know you just see something in a pile or you hear about something and, <laughs> you know so yeah yeah we'll take a quick break here on beyond the zero and come back with adam's top shelf This episode is brought to you by the reanimated corpse of Vladimir Lenin and the United Soviet Republic. Coming soon. Dosvidaniya! We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Adam's Top Shelf. 
I assembled this top 10 and now I thought, actually, I should just read through my top 10 again because, you know, some of these I haven't read in a couple of years or, or maybe even more. And I think, oh, God, I love that so much. Why, why, won't I, why, why aren't I reading that all the time? Anyway, um, in no particular order, because I just couldn't, uh, Julio Cortazar's short stories, Bullfires the Fire. Um, that was uh, just, I can't even describe, the first, the first time I read, I read that collection, I was just, it was another one of those moments actually where, where it was like, oh, can you do that? You know, um, particularly the title story where it cuts between an apartment in Paris in the 60s and ancient Rome and a, and a gladiatorial a, a gladiatorial fight and just the constant shifting back and forth between these two narratives. And it was another one of those, oh, my God, moments of, you know, uh, of, but this time of form of like, oh, you, you can do that too. So, that, um, yeah. And I think he's just a, a master of, of form and playing with form. Um, Elizabeth Smarts by Grand Central Station, I sat down and wept. Uh, I first came across it in a, in a bilingual edition, Italian and English. I can't speak Italian or read Italian, but there was, it was this beautiful edition that I saw in a bookshop in Venice. And it was the first day I was in, I was in Venice and I had never been to Venice before, but I found this book. And instead of spending the day walking around Venice and taking in the sights, I went back to my hotel room and just read it from cover to cover because I was immediately taken by it the second I started reading it. Um, and so that's something that I go to all the time, actually. I do read that one quite a lot. Um, Mrs. Dalloway, for obvious reasons, I think, Virginia Woolf across her whole oeuvre is, uh, you know, just, just a brilliant experimenter. And, uh, and, that, and, yeah, that's something that I really love. And, and, and I think it comes to the fore in Mrs. Dalloway, uh, that stream of consciousness part of, I don't know, stream of narrative passing through all these different, psyches um yeah um Jeanette Winterson's The Passion uh, uh, as I mentioned before um I've actually got Thomas Bernhard's Concrete here but it's not that one it, it's um it's uh The Loser mm. um and I just found that so funny and bleak but mainly funny and just, I, I don't know, a lot of people say, oh, I, I can't read Thomas Bernard because he's too, he's too bleak and too dense. I actually find him just really funny. He's one of the funniest authors I, I have read. Um, and particularly The Loser, I just enjoy, enjoyed that immensely. Uh, Laszlo Krasner Hawkeye's The Melancholy of Resistance. Um, and again, he's got that that, that form, that, that single paragraph form, which uh, just sucks me in every time, I think. Um, also a really, uh, really funny, entertaining, absurd writer, Enrique Villamatas. And his, particularly his novel, Dublin S. I fucking love that book. Isn't it good? So good. Yeah. And it was actually just the title that drew me to it to start with. I just thought it was an odd word. And I just, you know, I just thought, well, <laughs> what? <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's a book about the publishing world and, you know, for it, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a writers and publishers book, I would say. Um, 
But equally, I could have chosen um, uh, almost any of his other novels, especially um, Never Any End to Paris, which has that wonderful opening of describing how he was kicked out of a, an Ernest Hemingway lookalike competition um, for not looking anything like Ernest Hemingway, which I love. Um, the Vegetarian by Han Kang. Uh, I read that a few years ago and just loved it. Um, it was actually while I was working at, at the bookshop and I was shelving it one day and I just happened to read the first maybe paragraph and then slunk off around a corner to read, to read another 10 pages or so and just devoured it. Um, and uh, I, think, I think it's one of the better books to have appeared in the last few years. Uh, I, and again, the, kind of the form, it's, it's only a short novel, about 150 pages, but it's split into three and it's told from three different perspectives about this same character, the vegetarian, who we never hear from her perspective. Uh, and I found that quite haunting, actually. Um, and some of the images stay, still stay with me, just odd, strange images being about, you know, being convinced that she's a plant and just photosynthesizing and really great. Um, Roberto Bolaño's By Night in Chile is... Uh, I think it was the first Bolaño that I read, actually. And uh, when anyone asks where to start with him, I always, I always direct them to By Night in Chile. Um, even though, you know, 2666 is, is magic, as is The Savage Detectives. But I just think By Night in Chile is just Bolaño at his absolute best. Um, funny, absurd, bleak, historical. Um, and, and again, that stream of consciousness form. Um, and it just, it's one of, those, one of those narratives that once you just get on, you just can't get off until, until the end. Um, and lastly, I would, I've got here um, Seabull's Vertigo. Um, I, I, I really love particularly two of the stories in, I guess, I don't know what they are. They're very long short stories or maybe they're novellas or, mm. or at least two or three of them could be novellas. There's only four stories in it. But um, I, the, probably the, the two big things that attract me to Seabold uh, are his, his form, but also um, the elements of travel inherent in, in all of his books. And that was something that appealed to me straight away. Um, and the second story in the collection opens with the narrator being in, in, in Vienna and just wandering around and trying, trying to lose himself in this city, um, which actually when I first started reading it, I was in Vienna and I was, it, it was one of those spooky, uncanny things that, that happened when, when the right book finds you at the right time. Um, and so obviously once I started reading it, I, I couldn't put it down and, and have obviously gone through and read everything, but Vertigo just has a, has a special place in my heart. Um, and that's 10. Such a great list. God, there's so many of those books on my shelf behind me. Um, <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Mm. All right, before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can buy Waypoints when it comes out and where we can find you online? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter at Adam Austin and... Um, where else am I? Instagram as well. Uh, 
you can you can order waypoints from Puncher and Watman, um, their website in Australia, uh, or Splice in the UK and Europe. Um, yeah, is that it? Yes, <laughs> or or your 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 favourite independent bookshop will be able to get it in from March the nineteenth. March the 18th, even. It is such a fantastic book. I loved reading this. I think this is one of the the top Australian books I've read for a very long time. It's uh, And it's one of the top international books I've read for a very long time. I think it's just a, a great a great book. It's enjoyable. It's funny. It's got everything I kind of want in a book. Um, so I urge everybody listening to go out and order a copy because it's yeah, you won't regret it. It'll be on a prize list very shortly, I can assure you. You're making me blush. I'm <laughs> blushing. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks once again to Adam Alston. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.